Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Trampoline Hall podcast. I am your host, Misha Globerman. Trampoline Hall, as you know, is a lecture series that takes place in a bar uh, that's usually in Toronto. We sometimes go to other cities. People speak on all sorts of topics, with the one restriction being that they cannot speak on topics on which they are professionally expert. After each lecture, I take questions from the audience. But this, this isn't a lecture show in a bar. Right now, what you're listening to is a podcast in your head. Sure, maybe you are in a bar when you listen to a podcast, but that's just a coincidence. This is a podcast, the podcast created by Josh Block. The way that the podcast works is for each episode, we go through the extensive trampling hall archive we 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 pluck out one lecture then josh block takes that lecture and turns it into a podcast then we take the lectures we wrap them up we take six of them we make them up into a season then josh block uploads them to the internet where you can listen to them thanks to josh block whose name i am now saying more times than i've ever said it before this season all the episodes were chosen by who Josh Block? No! They were chosen by Kate Bars. Kate Bars went through the archive. She chose six episodes. She gave each one to Josh Block, and he turned them into podcasts and gave them to you so that you can enjoy them. If you enjoy the podcast and you are in Toronto and you are looking for a good time, then I have a good time for you. You should come to Trampoline Hall, the show. And the way to find out about that is go to the Trampoline Hall website, sign up for the email list, and we'll let you know when the next lecture is. But for now, now is not the time for that. Now is the time for this. Now is the time for the Trampoline Hall podcast. We will go to this episode's lecture. If you are a fan of mature language, you may be in for a treat because there may be some of that in the show. I want to emphasize the word may, which is not in itself mature language, but just a regular word. Now we come to the lecture. The topic is needle fists forever, and the speaker is Margie Francis. Hello. Uh, as has, I've just been introduced, I'm Margie Francis, um, and I am a member of the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society and a volunteer at the Moss Park Overdose Prevention Site. And I'm going to talk to you about um, how I've spent the last 10 months in a trailer in the park, well, first in tents, and then in a trailer in the park, helping ensure that people um, are using drugs safely and why I decided to do that. Um, so you, you might have gotten a naloxone kit. Um, you're go about to get a naloxone kit. And at the end, um, I'm going to... Maybe I'm going to be too nervous and get one of my friends who's better at this than me to help me um, train you on how to use it. So but so I just want to. So we're going to head out these kits now, and we, we've got. We don't have enough for everybody. We've got like about one per party is the way that we do it. So as you pass them around, sort of share them out accordingly. So yeah, feel free to um, fidget with that while I talk um, and familiarize yourself with its contents. So um, my older brother, Bill, was born with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, and I'm probably going to cry, which is, I'm comfortable with that, so I hope that you're also comfortable with that. Um, <laughs> And feel free to join me, um, you know. Um, my older brother, Bill, was 
born with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disorder that affects the joints where your immune system attacks them. It's long-term and degenerative and can be very painful. He spent his childhood in and out of hospitals. <laughs> trying experimental treatments and took a variety of medications, including painkillers, to manage his symptoms throughout his life. One moment, please. Bill was nine years older than me. I idolized him. He taught me a lot of practical life skills, things like how to roll a joint and how to throw a punch. Admittedly, I was never really very good at either of those things, but I appreciated the lesson. <laughs> he taught me not to tuck my thumb inside my fist because then it would break and uh, to keep my chin down, which I'm assuming is to avoid an uppercut. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> he triumphantly told his little sister the story of a 12-year-old him being picked on for his limp by an older kid. He was standing at the corner by the graveyard and some bullies started pushing him around. He was a willowy kid, but he told me that being small had its advantages because his fist fit perfectly in an eye socket. <laughs> he called them his needle fists. By the time he was 30, my brother Bill had an artificial knee and hip and had experienced some pretty severe complications from his arthritis. He used opiates to manage his chronic pain and he was thriving. He was a doting single dad and a wonderful brother and son. He was quick-witted and hilarious and loved by his large group of friends. In 2009, his doctor decided that his opiate use might be problematic and prescribed him a fentanyl patch. The patch was not sufficient in keeping him well, so he went to the doctor to get a higher dose. But when he put on that patch, with the fentanyl still left in his system from earlier in the day, he overdosed and died. He was 34 years old. I believe he died as a direct result of the drug war, and, it's, and if the doctors had paid more attention to his individual needs and clung less to a moralistic view of drugs, he would still be alive. The shock of his death to my family was followed by the deep, painful stigma that surrounds drug use. When my mother, in her grief, told the coroner that she that she knew my brother had not intended to die, that he had been thawing hamburger for the next day's dinner, the coroner replied that these people don't think about things like that. I told people how I'd lost my brother while fearing they would judge him as a person. This strong, brave, and beautiful man I had known all my life reduced to the moral in a sad story about someone who had misused drugs. Are we all comfortable with this? <laughs> Good. Um, my brother's death was the most painful experience in my life. I've spent many years despairing his loss, feeling entirely hopeless as I watch friend after friend die and communities and families feel that, that same crystal clear pain and be asked to shoulder that same stigma and shame that shouldn't exist. Since then, I have lost five very dear friends, and with each death, the pain grows exponentially. These deaths, which could have been prevented in so many ways, 
but chiefly, if we hadn't decided that drug use was bad and people who bravely use substances to manage all manner of pain are somehow bad too. I followed the overdose crisis as it swelled. I felt panicked. I organized a community training so all my friends would know how to use naloxone, a drug that can reverse an opiate overdose. I talked about overdose. I talked about how naloxone should be in every basic first aid kit. In 2016, 865 people died of overdose in Ontario, and in 2017, a staggering 1,195 people died. That's an increase of 41%. I spoke my brother's name and refused the shame. The OPS opened on August 11, 2017, after members of the Toronto Harm Reduction Alliance became fed up with the government's lack of response to the overdose epidemic, epidemic excuse me, that we are facing across North America. I was there on the second day, and I've been there every week since then. We operated out of three tents for the first four months, well into the cold autumn weather. We powered lights with little rechargeable car battery generators. We didn't have heat. The opening of our three-tent operation in the park shamed the government into pushing the opening of the rest of the supervised injection sites in Toronto, which were waiting for funding. And since August 11th, more than 332 ODs have been reversed at them. Over 220 of those were reversed at the Moss Park OPS. The Ontario government sent us an EMAT tent, which was like a like a, the, the sort of tent they'd send if there was like a natural disaster. It was really long and skinny and um, not practical for us. It wasn't suitable for our uses. Um, and they didn't consult us about it before they sent it. They just went ahead and sent it as this sort of like, look, we're helping. Um, and the tent cost, the, the tent had 24-hour surveillance um, in the park where people like have a life where they use drugs and don't want to be surveilled um, and a team of people who like monitored the HVAC and heating and the generator for it um, so they were they were guarding the generator um, and that cost the Ontario government roughly $1,500 a day, and it was there for 45 days. So that's roughly $67,500. Um, and we didn't really use it, and we didn't ask for it. Um, <laughs> so on November 20th, we moved a trailer into the park, which was provided by CUPE, the Canadian Union of Public Employees. <laughs> Woo! And on December 5th, we got a hydro hookup. Um, we haven't had plumbing, which means there's no washroom, uh, which sucks. Um, there have been so many wins, though, since we opened. The change of the legal framework federally to allow for overdose prevention sites to open across the country, which is amazing because there are so many communities, like small communities, that are really disproportionately affected by this crisis. Um, an OPS requires like less bureaucracy, just this one exemption to open. Um, 
as opposed to a supervised injection site, which is, I don't even know. There's like public consultations. There's, it took four years for them to say that they could open them in Toronto. Um, whereas like an OPS, you should be able to open in a couple months. Um, and they're generally like, I mean, in ours anyway, is like a lot like more low barrier to um, service users. And um, you can smoke the, wait, hold on, I lost my place. Yeah, oh yeah, and service users in an OPS are, um, are allowed assistance in injecting their drugs, whereas at an SAS, that's not allowed. And if you have proper facilities, people can also smoke um, drugs there. There are now 16 exempted OPS across the province, though some of them are struggling to find a place to operate. Um, we also forced the provincial government to expand funding with a promise of $222.2 million, which is the greatest increase in harm reduction funding we have ever seen. Um, we forced the establishment of the Provincial Overdose Task Force, which is currently on hiatus until after the election, and it depends on who wins, whether or not it will reconvene. Um, so that's something to consider this next week. Um, demanding, we demanded that drug users and harm reduction workers have a seat at the table, lending their expertise instead of just doctors um, and politicians policymakers, and not least of all, a change in the public dialogue, getting the overdose crisis in the media and bringing discussion about decriminalization to the general population. Um, our operating costs, <laughs> our operating costs have been covered by generous community donations to our GoFundMe amounting to more than $100,000 and the generous work of my fellow volunteers. On June 1st, we received a guarantee of funding for the next six months, and on June 11th, 10 months and 10 broken tents since we set up in the park, we will be moving into a building and we will have a toilet. <laughs> These past 10 months have taught me so much about the power of people standing up for what is right. And I think back to my brother and the way he used his small fists against a bigger opponent. Um, and the war on people who use drugs. Needle fist forever! Margie Francis, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to the Trampoline Hall Podcast. I'm Misha Goldman. Up next, the Q&A. Yeah, yeah. Did you want to? Do you? Are, is there a demo now? Is that like the? Can we demo? Yeah, yeah. Of course. Can I ask for help? Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Could I have my assistants, please? <laughs> These are two of my fellow volunteers. <laughs> and um, open your case if you haven't already. And in it, you'll see two syringes, 
and four ampules of naloxone. A breathing mask or a, a barrier for uh, CPR, yeah. Gloves. Rescue breathing. Rescue breathing, that's right. <laughs> and some alcohol swabs. A sheet to fill out some data. There should be instructions in yours, but there aren't in mine. So it's a good thing I took. Oh, no, there are, there are, there are, there are. Okay. Now, do you, what do you want to? Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling nervous. There's different presentations of an overdose, but typical ones would be like a, a respiratory depression. You see that someone's not breathing, a change in coloration, clamminess in their skin, or like blueness in their lips. Um, if you suspect that someone is overdosing, um, the first thing you should do is like try and get them to wake up by like saying their name or being like, hey, are you okay? Or like giving them a squeeze on their shoulder. Those are ways that you can uh, yeah, sternum rump, if they don't uh, react to the trap squeeze. Um, yeah, um, it's really important to um, give rescue breathing when someone's experiencing an overdose because what's happening in an overdose is someone's body is like forgetting to breathe basically. So if, um, if that happens for too long, it causes brain damage. So um, according to our instruction sheet, First thing you do is shake and shout. So if they can't be woken, uh, if they're not moving, if you see the change in coloration or the clamminess, um, then you move on and uh, you check their airway and you start to give rescue breathing. Um, so it's important to make sure that someone has like a clear airway so you can like put your finger in their mouth and make sure they're not choking, tilt their head back so they can get a breath and you, you give them one breath every five seconds. Um, yeah, pinch their nose and, and hold their head back like this. Um, and then you'll see in your kits the little ampules of naloxone. Um, what you want to do if, if you're going to open one is make sure it's all in the bottom. Sometimes some of it gets stuck in the top, so give it a couple like taps like that and then crack it open. Um, it's made of glass. These ones have these plastic protectors. Not all of them have those, but it's helpful to use the alcohol swabs in the kit to protect yourself when you open them. I've like cut my finger on them before because they're made of glass. Um, <laughs> and then, do you want to draw it up? I'm just doing the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to do this. Yeah, you, you should. Also, you can access these kits at uh, pharmacies all over the city and community health centers. They're free. You don't need to show identification. It's a very good thing to have on hand. I think we're like showing you the, the needle ones, but you can get a nasal spray that's quite easy to use. But it has a lot of naloxone in it. And um, also the kind of uh, overdoses that we see are presenting really differently than what we've witnessed before. So people get chest wall rigidity, which is basically people's chest gets really tight and people can't really move um, and so like injecting them with naloxone works a lot faster and so we've seen people turn around a lot quicker than just using the nasal spray from our experience but if you're afraid of needles using the nasal spray is quite easy and you just make sure you put it in the nose because sometimes people get nervous and they don't put it in they squeeze outside of the nose <laughs> these are this is absorbed faster it kicks in faster than the nasal spray 
Um, so you draw up your, your dose into your syringe uh, and then squeeze out any extra air. And don't worry about like an air bubble going into someone's vein and like killing them. You're not injecting into anyone's vein. This is like a thing we hear a lot with people being scared to use naloxone, but it won't happen. It's not a problem. You uh, can have a little bit of air in there and it's fine and you're injecting in someone's muscle. So it's good to do like upper arm or thigh or stomach or butt. It's like, doesn't really matter. It goes through clothes. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can stick it through someone's clothes. <laughs> yeah, so then do your dose and continue giving um, breaths like one every five seconds uh, and monitoring the person to see if they come back uh, after one dose. You can wait three to five minutes. If you don't notice a change, you can inject your second dose. Um, it's great if you're not alone. If you have a phone, you should call for help, call paramedics, get someone to assist you. Someone can do rescue breathing and someone can do the injecting of the naloxone or the nasal spray. And that's it. <laughs> Don't forget to replace your kit. <laughs> huh? Yeah, so you can get it at any pharmacy or community health center, um, places with a harm reduction program. Or you can come to the OPS in the park for the next few days. <laughs> Weeks. 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 Are you open up for questions now? Yeah. <laughs> That's Margie Francis. <laughs> Are there any questions? Yes, over there, yeah. What happens in a few weeks? Oh, you can visit us, but we'll be in our new location. We will no longer be in the park. We'll be inside. Um, I'm not... What's the address? 134 Sherburn. 134 Sherburn. Right, and that's near the park? Is that... Yeah, it's right across the street from the park on Sherburn, on the um, west side. Okay, cool. Yeah, so yes, up here. Any supplies you guys need for people to bring? Granola bars and socks and um, reusable grocery bags. We want those right now. How come? Because people always need a bag. People okay. are always losing a bag and needing a new bag. Or we give them some stuff they need a bag. Okay. Um, anything else we need? Food, water, water. There you go. Do you, do you have any of those things? Okay, good. There you go. Great. Anything else? Anything else you would like to know? Yes, up here. Yeah. Besides the work that you're doing, what can be done to improve the situation without overdosing? Um, well, I think for me, a big one is to um, if you know someone who's using drugs, don't be mean to them about it. Um, I think that, I think we need to change the way we look at um, drug use and kind of, and uh, decrease stigma as much as we can. 
Um, also, uh, you can write letters. What do we want right now? Yeah, well, we want decriminalization. So fight for decriminalization. Um, write letters to politicians that say that that's something you're in favor of. Um, don't vote for Doug Ford. <laughs> that would be a mistake. It's really the solution to so many potential problems. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he does not support SIS. Um, even though he was a hash dealer, which is like the coolest thing about him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there you go. So there are, so there are a few things that we can do. <laughs> Anything else that people can do? Anything else? Any questions? Yes, yes, you, ma'am. Yes. So your question is, can I ask a question? I'm going to say yes. What's your question? Oh, you used up your question. Do you think decriminalization is feasible in Canada? If so how could it happen? I do think it's feasible. I don't see why not. It's worked very well in Portugal. Um, how can we make it happen? Just keep yelling about it, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not like. I'm. I'm. I don't have all of those solutions in my repertoire, but I think just keep supporting it and talking about it, and we need to keep having these conversations. Um, I'm sure that someone else would like would have a better, like, you could Google it or something. <laughs> <But> <laughs> that just, that's the answer to the entire trampoline hall Q&A. We, we pretend that Google doesn't exist. Deep Google? <laughs> it, sort of, it sort of undoes the entire premise of the show, basically. Sorry. Don't it's okay. It's all right. Uh, I mean, I want to ask you some questions actually about the OPS. Like, so, so you, are you there sort of regularly at the OPS? Are you there helping people with overdoses? Is that your? Yeah, um, my job that I usually do there. There's there's three jobs, uh, well four jobs. There's like the shift lead who's kind of overseeing everything. Then there's two people on the injection side. One of which is like a harm reduction worker, and one of which is a nurse. Right. And they're. Um, assisting people if they overdose or like assisting people to inject or whatever else is going on over there, um, providing people with needles and stuff. And then there's the distro person who hands out harm reduction supplies and the greeter, which is what I normally do, which is kind of like the hostess slash security <laughs> position. <Right>. So <laughs> I control the flow of traffic in and out of the injection room. Um, so yeah, I just like. Why do you have that job? What is it about that job? That well, I used to be a you? bouncer. <laughs> 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 and I'm like pretty good at that part um, of like being like firm yet gentle. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can really so see that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I I just like that job. I think I like uh, talking to people, and I yeah. All right. 
And is and, and then how and this is maybe I'm sort of naive, but I'm not sure that I understand. So it's in the park right now. It's in the park, and the park is a place where there's lots of lo- where there's lots of drug use. Is that right? And it's yeah, this park has been like for the past thirty years, like a a hub of of drug use and and dealing and stuff. And so is it serving mostly people who are in the park, or would people come from farther to come to the to, to both? But yeah. so someone might be ODing like across town and be like, oh, this is like I have to get there, or would it be? Well, like if you're ODing, you couldn't would, get there. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, but a friend might a friend might bring them or something, or would they like? Or no, if it's like if they're ODing, then um, if you haven't got an naloxone kit to deal with it, then you should call the paramedics right, right away. Right. Um, this is more like if it's like a prophylactic. So if you want to use drugs, right, and you fear that you could OD, I see. Then you come and inject them here. So if you overdose, then we can give you oxygen and naloxone. So it's not someone who's like already in trouble and they're like, oh my God, we have to get them to OPS. It's more like if you want it, if, y- if, if you're going to take drugs and you want to be in a situation where you know that, the, that there are people who can help you if you do OD, that's the place to yeah, go to. Yeah, it's like beforehand. a support for, for drug users using drugs okay, at right. that moment. Okay, cool. Thank you. Anything else? Uh, yes, uh, 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 yes, in the back of the room. Yeah. Yes, all the way back there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just wondering. What the difference between an SIS and an OPS is that makes one take so much longer bureaucratically? What's the difference between SIS and OPS, and, and why does one take so much longer than the other? I don't really know why one takes so much longer than the other. Um, guys, why? Yeah, well, yeah, that's the thing. So, I so guess. So thing we just set a precedent <laughs> by breaking the law that it could be done and you'll look really shitty if you don't let us continue to do it. Um, so before there was that, thi- there was like the process of starting an SIS, and that was the only one that existed. But then when we went in the park and just started doing it, they were like, "Okay, well, you well you just need this one exemption to do it legally." Right. So you just put them in a position where you're like, "If we're already doing this, are you really going to shut us down?" As opposed to not giving us permission, and they were like, "Right, that's not something we really want to do." So we'll make up rules to allow it. Is that right? Is yeah. That the, is that is that accurate? I'm looking to your, yeah, your friends are not. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's the answer. The answer is that they made the government. They forced the government to make it be okay, basically. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Anything else? Uh, anything else that, that anyone else would like to know? All right. Let's go over there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you don't know what somebody's overdosing from, is this kit worth? Does it help if you don't know what they're overdosing from? No, it only works for opiates, but it wouldn't hurt someone if they were if they were like not on opiates. Mm-hmm. So the way it works is that it um you've got opiate receptors in your brain and they're like a magnet that attra- attract opiates. And naloxone has a stronger pull to those receptors than um, opiates do. So this will like butt in there get all the little opiate res- little molecules off the receptor and it will stay there for about 45 minutes. Um, but if you aren't, like having naloxone attached to your opiate receptor is going to affect you in no way at all unless you are like overdosing on opiates. Uh, yes, up here. Yeah. So you heard the dangerous that dangerous that it kills the, was that it kills the high and so people re-inject because they're like. I don't think there's any substance that works better than naloxone for this. Um, there is, 
like at the site since we have oxygen and like a nurse um we don't always inject people with naloxone right away because it does like kill their high and then they can be sick they can have withdrawal yeah, symptoms withdrawal yeah but um but it's not dangerous to have withdrawals it just really sucks right. um <laughs> so if you're but but if you're like at home and you don't have an oxygen tank you know and you're not a nurse then your friend might be a little bit pissed off at you but also they're alive um but also like that's why it's important to like check to see if they're awake you know, before right, injecting so that's step it. One. So don't just be like, oh, you've nodded out, which is maybe a desirable effect from when you've injected an opiate, and mm -hmm. then inject them, then they're gonna be really mad. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good tip, thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you. You like armed all these people with these kits, and now they're just gonna <laughs> anger their opiate-using friends. Yeah. 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 Uh, so good, don't do that. <laughs> Try to wake them up first. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, do you? One thing that I'm curious about, and this is maybe I, I'm going to ask this. I feel, which is, um, you mentioned that you lost five friends to this, and one of the things for me is that, like, I'm curious. Uh, I've I've heard so much about the opiate about the about the overdose epidemic and how 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 sort of vast it is and how it touches so many people's lives. And my experience, like personally, is that I don't know that it's touched my life. And then I hear from you, and I'm like, wow, you've lost like five people to this. But you know me now, so it has touched your life. Yeah, no, that's true. I guess that's true. But but more more in more indirectly, though. Like, And I guess I'm curious, is there... I'm curious what's different about your life than mine that you know five people who have died from this. Is it is it is there is it a different world that you're in? Is it just chance? Is it a different circles that you're in? Um, I've definitely have had a lot of friends who use drugs right. for sure um, and if you don't have a lot of friends who use drugs you're less likely to be affected by it right. my brother overdosed on his prescription yeah so you know that that can happen too um i think you're just lucky it's possible yeah no, that's part of what because there's all kinds of different ways that you know some people use drugs um because they want to for pleasure yeah. um or because they don't feel good and they want to feel some relief. Other people, especially since um, the sort of first stage of the um, what they were trying to do to combat the overdose crisis, is they stopped prescribing high-dose opioids. Oh, well, they stopped um, having them on like the. You could no longer get them with if you were like a low-income person with like. That kind of insurance, like they're only available if you bought them. Right. So you couldn't get them covered if you were like on ODSP. You couldn't get your high dose opioids covered. So that means that people who were relying on them for pain management now had to like go and get a diverted prescription. But maybe what does that mean? A diverted prescription? Uh, you a get prescription someone like yeah, someone else's prescription. Right, okay. But then there's at some point no one has a prescription anymore to divert right. so the only option they have left is to like buy street drugs that they don't know what's in them right so this is like an argument for why it's so important to you know decriminalize drugs because if everybody knew what was in their drugs we wouldn't be in this trouble sure great okay thank you anything else uh yes yes over here yeah
Who are your biggest uh, allies in the decriminalization project and also in the, just in the, in the OPS project in the park? Um, some of the community health centers, like South Riverdale Community Health Center has been a really big ally. Um, it's hard to say what politicians are actually allies, you know? I'm not really, really willing to say any of them are. Mm -hmm. They're just like using us and we're using them and it's like back and forth, right. you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the answer to that question. All right, so no politicians is the answer. If the answer is which politicians are your allies, the answer is none. none not of really. Right. Not truly. Right. Okay. What, what is it like? How, and you, you spend a lot of your time doing this. Yeah. What, um, what's that like? What's it like choosing to do that? It's good. For me, it's hugely good. It's, um, I don't know that, uh, like, I'm, just, I'm shocked uh, that I've stumbled upon an opportunity to like work through my despair like this. Like it's crazy. Um, so it's good. It can be stressful, but I think <laughs> because of my experience as a bouncer, I don't find it that stressful. Um, I'm used to chaotic situations. Oh. As, as you know, I said, like I've had a lot of friends who use drugs for a long time. I've um, been in chaotic situations in my life. And so, I don't know, I find it kind of <laughs> comforting and I'm happy to be helping people live. And so for you, part of what's still motivating you is like working through, like you're still working through that despair. That's like a big part of the driver for yeah, this, is that right? Yeah, for sure. How's it going? Good. Um <laughs> It's not. Question. It's it's not a straight line. Yeah. <laughs> Working through despair. Yeah. As some of you might know, um, it's yeah, but it's it's good. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Anything else people would like to know? Yes, you over there. Yeah. Are there any like certain criteria for volunteering at your center, or is it just kind of like you take whatever help you can get? Um, we there's um. Preference for people who have lived experience, so um, people injection drug users, um, and we have a lot of people who work there who are harm reduction workers. Um, but yeah, not exactly. Like, there's not like a you don't have to give a resume, but um, right now we are shifting from like fully volunteer to having funding and so some people will be paid mm -hmm. so we're not like i'm not really sure what the volunteer situation is going to look like but we're still going to have volunteers yeah. so it kind of remains to be seen all right cool i say hand up back there yes thank you so much for sharing your story um, oh no problem So has there been interaction in this work with other people who are going through despair similar to yours, and how's, how's that been? Yeah, everyone there um, has experienced loss, um, be it through friends or family members or through their work, a lot of people. Um, so uh, I've met a lot of people who are also having the same experience, and it's, it's huge to be in the company of them. Um, sometimes it's a little bit hard, if I'm honest, because it's like, <laughs> a lot of really like 
traumatized sad people like together and it's like oh is there room for all of our stuff in here you know but <laughs> but it's it's really great and I especially find it like it's funny how like the more specifically related it is to your trauma like the nicer it is to be around but I've I've met some people who've also lost their siblings and it just like feels bad obviously it does not feel good <laughs> it feels bad that they uh, they too but it's really comforting well, I see you guys nodding up there. Do, do are, you, are you also like, is that your experience as well, you guys who work with? <laughs> 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 all right. Well, maybe, maybe we'll, well, all right. All right, yeah, okay, yes, you, sir. Yeah, you're right. so I get to get one more question. So in the spirit of destigmatizing the drug users, could you just talk about like some people who you meet at the park? Well, I don't want to um, infringe upon anybody's uh, anonymity, but we meet all kinds of different people at the park. Um, yeah. Uh, how do I talk about them? I feel kind of uncomfortable talking about them. Just because... Yeah, of course. That's <laughs> 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 good to know. <laughs> of course, you don't need names. Um, but like, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's everybody. I'm, I'm sure there's people in this room who use drugs. And if it's not opiates, which probably some of you have or do use opiates, there's people in here who definitely use blow, like probably all of you. So <laughs> like, <laughs> or have, and if not that, like, weed but let's be honest um so it's everyone you know everybody uses drugs and you're drinking we all drink so um it's this weird hierarchy of drug use that is like very problematic all right cool all right let's wrap it up there ladies and gentlemen margie francis ladies and gentlemen thank you Trampling Hall was created in Toronto in the 21st century by Sheila Hetty and is hosted by me. This episode's lecture was originally chosen by Eula Benavolsky. The podcast is produced by Josh Block. Our theme music was composed by Matt Smith. Our coordinating producer is Kate Bars. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. If you enjoyed the podcast, uh, you might also want to leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us out a lot. I'm Misha Globerman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.